0: Hello, I'm Rolf Fontanelle. This is the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, and we are speaking today with Dr. Jeremy Swist on the political project of the Emperor Julian. Jeremy, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Julian, the apostate, as he is known, the last traditionally religious emperor of the Roman realm, although his religion is anything but traditional, if you... Start to look at it's late antique, to say the least. Before we get into his political ideology, his political project, the way he frames it, I wonder if you could tell us about the kind of political situation he finds himself in as emperor, like the real politic side of things, what's going on in the empire.
1: Okay, um, so the best way to think about that is to go back to the crisis of the third century. Uh, and just the this period of anarchy and civil war and economic downturn, which doesn't really get rescued until Diocletian comes to power in 283-284 CE. Uh, from there, he begins a project where he turns what's called the Principate into the dominant. Okay? In other words, he sees one solution to the Empire's problems is to elevate the position of Roman emperor from princeps, that is this first among equals, this normal mortal man who, you know, yes, might, you know, have the favor of the gods, but is ultimately a soldier, a soldier emperor, you know, from that period. Uh, And what Diocletian says is that, no, ideologically the emperor needs to be in a much higher position. And he goes from a princeps to a dominus, a, a lord or master and everyone else is his slave, Servi. This is the period where you start seeing, starting with Diocletian, um, where you have the emperor being in a more established court with uh, various chamberlains uh, and secretaries, uh, and it becomes much more formalized, the idea of the consistory. Uh, and Constantine will eventually really solidify this, and this really becomes the nucleus of the Byzantine imperial Uh, system here. So Diocletian, part of this ideology, which is relevant to Julian here, which we'll get to, is in addition to elevating the status of the emperor, he also associates the imperial office with the patronship of a certain Olympian god, which is what emperors have done before. So he begins associating himself with Jupiter or Zeus. He calls himself Jovius. But in addition to what he does for himself, um, Diocletian is, of course, known for forming the Tetrarchy, uh, in which uh, the key to the stability of the empire is to share imperium with colleagues who would be part of this kind of college of emperors, um, and so that every part of the empire is more directly ruled by them, so that, you know, if the emperor's on one corner of the empire, there won't be a bunch of revolts on the other by some disloyal general. Uh, and so in the Tetrarchy, you have, you know, two senior emperors, the Augusti, okay? and this started as as uh, Diocletian and Maximian. And so Diocletian was the Jovius, he was the Jupiter emperor, and then Maximian became Hercules, okay, the Hercules emperor. And if you think about that, Hercules is the son of Jupiter, and so even though they're two Augusti, there is a sense of a senior and junior one. And then below them are the two Caesars, uh, a Jupiter Caesar and a Hercules Caesar. And those are the junior emperors who will eventually succeed the Augusti. And so this idea of this sort of divine patronship will be important moving forward for Julian's dynasty. Because what happens is, even though Diocletian has the Tetrarchy in which he is essentially... Turning the Roman imperial system into a much more bureaucratic, totalitarian type of state, which is anachronism, but uh, you know he certainly increases the numbers of the imperial service and the size of the army, etc. The imperial government becomes much more involved in everyday affairs of people, um, you know, to the point where. He, to stabilize the economy he basically says that if you're born a blacksmith you have to stay a blacksmith and your son becomes a blacksmith and stuff like that so as many people learn about the tetrarchy it's great in theory but as soon as diocletian retired uh to uh salona and to grow cabbages the thing pretty much fell apart uh and the tetrarchs basically uh fell into civil warfare again and after several years of that, Constantine, quote-unquote, the great, comes out on top, okay? the son of one of the original Tetrarchs, Constantius I, Constantius Chlorus. And Constantine had a different idea of this sort of divine patronship thing, because his family and his dynasty, which he traces back to the emperor Claudius II, their patron god was Sol Invictus. Mm. They were devotees of the imperial solar cult, um, which, you know, has precedent with the emperor Aurelian, as well as the emperor Elgabalus uh, back in the early third century. Uh, so the idea that Sol Invictus is the supreme god, and the one that brings the emperor victory. And so, as we all know, Constantine eventually fought the Battle of the Milvian Bridge against one of his tetrarchic rivals, Maxentius, uh, and you know, allegedly, according to Christian writers, saw the vision in the sky in Hoc Sig- Signo vinces, seen the sign you'll conquer. And then they say that is him adopting Christianity because he thought it would grant him victory. And some scholars think that he basically identified his soul invictus with the Christian God, you know, moving forward. He was much more syncretic than some people give him credit for. Um, but eventually this starts, you know, the process of Christianization, where he legalizes Christianity in 313 with the Edict of Milan, but that doesn't make it the official religion. That doesn't come until later in the century with the Emperor Theodosius. But nevertheless, by the emperor becoming Christian, suddenly Christianity uh, and being Christian is seen as a ticket into the establishment. And so even though there's only about 10% of the empire's population is Christian at this time... Once Constantine converts and starts subsidizing Christianity and building churches and giving special privileges to bishops and all that, people are starting to realize that uh, Christianity will be a way to work your way up the social hierarchy. And so we see more and more convergence. Constantine doesn't ban paganism. You know, he doesn't even do much legislation against, like, sacrifices in temples, Sometimes he does, like, for instance, the cult of Asclepius, he has to take some action against because he sees that as a little too similar to uh, another son of God who healed people that they, you know, were worshiping. But upon Constantine's death in 337, uh, he is succeeded by his sons, Constantius II, Constantine II, and Constance, and they are much more... Hostile to paganism, they think they fit there, and they feel themselves in a greater position to impose Christianity more heavy-handedly. So eventually, it's just Constantius II who comes out on top after Constantine II Second and Constans face each other in civil war, and then a usurper Magnentius takes care of Constans, and then Constantius II takes care of Magnentius. It's a very, you know, the typical pattern of usurpers popping up in squabbles of the later Roman Empire anyway. uh, So, Constantius II um, has more legislation banning sacrifice, banning divination, closing temples, or, you know, selling temples to to Christians so they can rededicate them as churches, stuff like that. So, when Julian comes on the picture, okay, so Julian is born in... Uh, 334, roughly. And when Constantine, his uncle dies in 337, there's a mass purge of Julian's branch of the Flavian dynasty. So his father's killed several of his uncles, um, you know, Constantine's half-brothers and otherwise. But Julian is spared because he's young. And so he's packed off to, you know, various uh, places of semi-exile where he's, you know, basically raised on Christian and classical literature by various tutors, bishops, and otherwise. Eventually, by 355, Constantius II, he's been emperor by himself for a while, and he realizes that while he goes and deals with the Persians to the east, he needs somebody to represent him in the west to make sure that the Germans are behaving on their side of the Rhine. Uh, and so he, appoint- he elevates Julian to the rank of Caesar, Okay, so he's keeping this sort of semi-tetrarchic arrangement here. And Julian, by that point, had already secretly converted to paganism, "paganism," quote-unquote. He had studied with Odysseus and Maximus of Ephesus uh, and Eusebius of Midnus uh, in Pergamum and Ephesus and basically was turned on to the hieratic Iamblichian theurgic brand of Neoplatonism, but he kept that secret for appearances. So for the next five years, he is junior emperor Caesar in Gaul. He's fighting against the Franks and the and various Germanic tribes that are, you know, trying to cross the Rhine. And so he eventually builds up military experience. Uh, and it turns out that he you know, has a knack for it um, and for administration, uh, which is great for him. Uh, and he had some various victories. And then what happened was Constantius II saw this going on and he got jealous.
0: Yeah, this always um, happens in the late Roman world, doesn't
1: exactly. it? Exactly. You don't like, want to do
0: too badly, but you don't want to do too well either.
1: Right. Uh, so, yeah, Constantius elevated Julian because, you know, he wanted to keep power in the family. But on the other hand, he didn't want anybody to rival his supremacy, But Julian eventually, after various military victories, uh, became pretty popular himself. And what Constantius did to deal with it eventually was tell Julian in a letter, hey, I need to go fight a war against the Persians. Can you send me half of your whole entire army? Because Constantius thought, oh, this will deprive him of, you know, that much power. Well, that backfired because Julian presented this plan to his troops who were largely natives to the area of Gaul and Germany, etc. And they didn't want to go to Persia because they didn't want to leave their their families or anything. And so they decided, you know what, we don't have to listen to this guy. We listen to you, Julian. Why don't you be our Augustus? And so they proclaimed him Augustus in the city of Paris in 360. And Julian, you know, reluctantly accepted it. Though again, you know, with the sources, this whole idea of the recusatio in Perry, where you know, in order to be considered a good emperor, you have to be seen as taking power reluctantly. Yeah, um, he decides to accept their proclamation. They
0: force him to, they force him to. They basically
1: force him to. They raise him on a shield. They put a torque over his head. That's good enough. And he's like, okay, let's just roll with it. That's that's Um, proper
0: old Celtic Gaulish uh, custom, incidentally, which is really cool.
1: And the whole shield thing, it'll continue. Uh, that's what they did to the Emperor Justin the First, um, you know, a couple centuries later, the predecessor of Justinian. Um, so you know it's it's a ceremony that even continues into the Byzantine period. So anyway, Constantius is, you know not happy about this, uh, but it's not really until a year later that things come to a head uh, and they're on a collision course to civil war. So Julian uh, starts marching east and Constantius starts marching west. In late three sixty one serendipitously, Constantius dies of a fever somewhere in Asia Minor. And Julian, by dynastic principle, becomes even though he was a usurper in he actually becomes the legitimate emperor. and there isn't really much of a problem with accepting that. So he gets to Constantinople and he gives his cousin you know a Christian burial. Um, You know, does all the things to signal that, you know, I am part of this dynasty, you know, I'm legitimate, Um, I'm going to honor my ancestors here. So he walks out of the church and then says, Oh, by the way, I'm not actually Christian. So let's start with julian's political slash religious program here which was your question to start with but i figured that some of that context was probably helpful that's
0: hugely helpful thank you um okay beautifully laid out i think we've got all the the essentials there for non-specialists to get an idea of what's going on we're talking if i could just reiterate um Mm -hmm. we're talking about a, a state that has undergone like revolutionary change so from diocletian onward it's become this kind of military machine Um, Mm -hmm. a much less nice place to live in than it was under the Principate, arguably, in a lot of places. You're paying a lot more taxes. The taxes are being gathered more efficiently now, which really sucks. Um, If you're living in some small little out-of-the-way place and you think, oh, we never had to pay taxes before, suddenly we do. There's constant war. And Christianity, which was a, in many ways, revolutionary social movement for the first couple hundred years, has now suddenly, from the Edict of Milan in 313 to you know Constantine's death in 337 very short amount of time gone from being another weird Jewish thing that we're not really concerned about if we're concerned about it it's because we want to just have a little local persecution for the most part right to being grafted onto the cult of Roman imperial power in a empire where increasingly there can be only one ideology one state one emperor this sort of more and more unifying totalizing Mm. way of thinking that we see in late antiquity and then julian steps in and he has an answer to this but he's going to flip the script on the whole christian side of it right
1: uh certainly and uh you know i'm i'm thinking of the image that uh, dante describes at the end of the purgatorio where he has that sort of allegorical vision of the history of the church in the earthly paradise where the church is this chariot pulled by a griffon, which is Christ. uh, But then this Eagle swoops down and attacks the chariot, you know, symbolizing the persecutions, but then eventually the Eagle dresses the chariot with its feathers. And so that represents Constantine, you know, doing that grafting of, you know, church and state there. But I think, you know, bringing up, you know, Diocletian again, you know, the idea of unifying the empire under a single kind of religious system is certainly something that Diocletian had tried to do with the Great Persecution and sort of the the idea, the religious ideology of the dominant, okay, with the, the Jupiter and Hercules emperors. And that was mainly to maintain the imperial cult, okay, the worship to varying degrees of, of the person of the emperor and the genius of the emperor. And the reason that Diocletian pressed hard on that was, you know, the imperial cult is not only, you know, religious, it's also a sign of, it's sort of the equivalent of a pledge of allegiance when you sacrifice to the emperor. But the other thing is, he's very interested in maintaining the Romans called the pax deorum, the peace of the gods, in other words, you know, the romans have to make nice with the gods so that the gods can continue to preserve the roman state grant it victory etc and so julian's going to draw on this and a, this and idea then,
0: if i could interrupt the, yeah. this idea of the pax deorum is a really really old roman idea this goes back exactly. to the republican times so the the romans yeah. were always as they encountered other peoples mm-hmm. starting with the greeks and the etruscans they mm-hmm. were their attitude was let's get their gods on our side and that's mm-hmm. how we're going to keep winning and it kind of seemingly worked for them for <laughs> many hundreds of years they were yes. you know so they would take gods gods like isis and and, uh, and mm-hmm. well in in our period mithras perfect mm-hmm. example the these are roman gods but mm-hmm. their their origins aren't roman but they just take them on wholeheartedly they're like this is a roman god now we go forward with yet another addition to our pantheon and mm-hmm. i guess more power more numen on our side
1: yes indeed And so that's why you have, you know, emperors like Decius and Valerian and Diocletian, you know, running persecutions because they believe that all of the problems of the third century crisis were caused by Rome the Romans, you know, losing touch with the gods and that they saw the Christians as largely responsible for disrupting this link. So let's fast forward to back to back to our narrative to Julian deciding what to do here. So... Julian's idea, of course, is we need to restore, you know, the traditional activities of the pagan religions of the empire, okay, so he... He himself issues in February of 361 an edict of toleration and revokes all of the privileges and subsidies that uh, the church and the princes of the church had been given under his predecessors. And then, of course, he diverts those to temples, restoring temples, restoring sacrifices, getting the local civic cults going. And... This connects to his other areas of reform. So we talked about, you know, the dominant becoming this more kind of centralized system with this great bureaucracy and all of these uh, imperial officials, you know, collecting taxes and just kind of getting involved in everyone's business. Julian actually tries to turn back the clock on that. Julian's model for what the Roman Empire should be, is highly inspired by the second century principate under the so-called five good emperors, uh, especially the emperor Marcus Aurelius, which Julian doesn't emulate entirely. He kind of projects onto Marcus Aurelius a lot of what he thinks a quote-unquote philosopher king should be, Um, but he definitely sees that as, you know, the period where the empire was at peace and it was prosperous and because he thought that they had... You know the blessings of the gods secured. Another part of implementing that that model is that he thought that we should decentralize yet again. He saw the imperial bureaucracy as highly corrupt, and he thought, no, we need to streamline this, especially the imperial palace where these where there's all of these, you know. Courtiers and barbers and cooks and eunuchs and all of these all these types, um, you know that that he basically dismissed, and he gave much more freedom to the various cities of the empire. He had a much more hands off approach with that area. He wanted to see a revival of local civic participation of, you know, the curiae, okay, the local councils in the provincial cities to manage their own affairs. And he renounced things like the crown tax, uh, for instance, Um, they no longer, that, that became voluntary, for instance. As for the religious side of things, Julian sees, you know, the diversity of the cults in the empire as all devoted to, in fact, a limited set of gods, you know, right. the traditional Olympian gods. And he simply, you know, if you read some of this stuff, you know, he says, oh, the Phoenicians, you know, worship Monimus and Azizus, but those are actually Hermes and Ares, uh, and he uses that to kind of show that, you know, we're all worship the limited set of gods under the same names. And then for him, those gods, in turn, are, in fact, philosophical principles, Okay, and we'll get into that, but he basically sees that the worship of these gods, as did Diocletian and and those before him, guaranteed the preservation of and prosperity of the empire. And the way he interpreted this is practice of theurgy. In fact, is a big part of this. Okay. Um, Boom. <laughs> So he saw himself, you know, not just as the commander-in-chief of the army and, you know, the the head of the political system, though he saw himself more as a first among equals. You know, he didn't think of himself as, you know, divine or anything. Um, He was much more the Augustus or Trajan model of kind of presenting himself to his peers as he saw them. Nevertheless, he saw himself also as the Pontifex Maximus and the chief priest of Rome's religious system. And he thought that, you know, even though there's this great diversity of different cults, local, you know, civic cults and mystery cults and everything, he still saw himself as the chief priest of all of those, because he interpreted all of those through the lens of his theurgic Iamblichian Neoplatonism. And he believed that the practice of theurgy, specifically by himself and the high priests of these various cults, was necessary to open and keep open the channels of divine illumination that come into the world of generation and give it form and preserve it. And he saw himself as sort of the main link between the gods and the material world uh, to uh, secure that link. Okay? And he also identified the material world with the Roman Empire. There's kind of a, a one-to-one correspondence there. And so now we are finally circling back to the idea of the patron gods that you know, Diocletian, Maximian, and Constantine had before his conversion uh, and even after. So Julian, like the rest of his family before the conversion, was a devotee of the sun god. Um, he privileged what he called Ho Basileus Helios. Emperor Helios. Some say King Helios, but the Greek word for king and emperor are basically the same. Yeah. Hey, Basileos. Hey, and translating it as Emperor Helios, I think, is more helpful in this context because he thought that Helios caused his soul to descend with the specific purpose of restoring the empire. And uh, this fits into specifically Roman imperial ideologies of refounding Rome, re-founding the Roman state with each successive imperial administration. In other words, to become a new Romulus, to become a new Augustus, okay, to restore Rome. And Juliet interpreted this as the gods sent you on a providential mission to renew and maintain the preservation of the material worlds and bring it into closer contact with the gods upon who sustain it. And... Julian saw this providential mission as the key to his own salvation. In fact, you know, he sees gods like Asclepius, for instance, you know, these so-called rivals to Christ, he called them Soteres, okay? Their their purpose was to come to the, you know, descend into the generation in order to bring order and really health to the cosmic or- organism, which is the material world, you know, with its own world soul, drawing from the Timaeus here. And I can go further into the metaphysics of this, if you like.
0: I'd like that. But um, before we do okay. that, let's before we mm-hmm. get into the metaphysics, and we never shy away from metaphysics here at the Schwer, mm-hmm. what, what one of the things I find fascinating about Julian, he's mm-hmm. uh, fluent in Greek, fluent in Latin. He knows what you might call the, the classical Greek curriculum which by this time in Roman culture has been canonized for 500 plus years. I mean, in terms of the guys you have to read, Homer, Hesiod, the Tragedians, Plato, Aristotle, etc. But he also is the heir to this enormous amount of Roman lore, like the kind of stuff we find in Plutarch's lives, but with another few hundred years added on, you know, or another hundred plus years added on. So this, this really native Roman stuff... But he's dovetailing it all into one Hellenistic cultural tradition. So he defines the Romans as basically honorary Hellenes, right? And all that which is good from Hellenism and all that which is good from Rome is part of what he's an heir to. Now, what is the kind of background, at least some of the background, to this idea of his figure as a kind of salvific high priest of the whole world? Because as you say... The empire and the world are somewhat synonymous. And I know he does something which will become completely canonical in the East Roman Christian realm, which is to see the imperium as an earthly mirror of the celestial realm. Mm. So, you know, the, the church and the empire are one thing. The emperor is kind of like the vicar of Christ on earth reigning over the world all this sort of stuff julian does this right in a non-christian way um so what's he drawing on like when you talk about these um these souls being sent down from the gods to become roman emperors the first thing i think of is book six of virgil's aeneid where aeneas sees he actually goes to visit the place where all the the future roman souls of emperors and kings and stuff are well not emperors yet Except for Augustus, but rulers of Rome are sort of lined up, waiting to be shot into creation when the time comes. Is that one of the sources for this kind of idea?
1: So, first off, yeah, Julian's view of you know the relationship of the Romans to the Greeks is um, you know in the hymn to Helios that he writes. Um, you know, he says that the Greeks and the Romans are a single genos. he sees them as not just honorary Greeks, but ethnically Greeks. So, um, you know, even just biologically, if you will. And he says that Rome is a Greek city, Roman culture is from beginning to end Hellenic. Um, And so he sees that, uh, and he traces this back to, you know, the gods planned it this way. So for instance, he talks about how the gods first off, sent Dionysus and Heracles in order to civilize the world. And then after that, uh, the gods planted various oracles, okay, such as the oracle at Delphi and elsewhere. And these oracles then sent off the Greeks to colonize the world. And he said the reason for that was uh, to prepare the world for Roman rule. And then with, on the Roman side of things, you know, he says that you know eventually, on the model of a Dionysus or a Heracles or an Asclepius, that uh, he sent Romulus. I say he Helius uh, is the he here. Uh, Helius uh, sent Romulus' soul into generation to found Rome, uh, and then did the same thing with his successor King Numa to sort of start that pattern.
0: So Romulus and certainly has really been rehabilitated in the Julianic reading. He's yes, he's become a fantastic virtuous dude.
1: Oh yes, uh and he says this about, you know, Heracles as well. Julian's reading of mythology is standard, you know, Neoplatonic, porphyrian allegorical reading where he basically says, you know, anything quote-unquote incongruous in the myths, anything that's absurd or sounds like something that is not appropriate to say about the gods or anything or heroes, you know, you have to read between the lines there. You know, that here's the word esoteric reading. Exactly. To into play, right. And so he would say that uh, you know, Dionysus and Heracles were actually philosopher kings who were entirely pure and and everything. Uh, and so he saw that Romulus was this type of figure as well. In terms of the tradition, I believe that most of his knowledge of roman history comes through greek sources plutarch's lives are one of the most influential i would be not surprised if he read dionysius of halicarnassus and cassius dio as well okay who have full roman histories Yes, he certainly uh, spoke Latin and could read Latin. Okay, he had to, you know, as commanding soldiers, especially in the West. um, But it's the language of the army in general. So he definitely had to become fluent in Latin. Um, But I don't believe he read much Latin literature. So I'm doubtful that he read the Aeneid. Um, So when you bring up book six, I think what is going on with his conception of this kind of scheme of reincarnation is he's probably going back to what influenced Virgil in that book, which is Plato's various eschatological myths like the myth of Ur, uh, etc. Though, I think the most useful platonic myth to understand kind of how Julian sees this providential scheme of, you know, imperial souls descending is the Ah, uh, chariot allegory of the Phaedrus hmm. in which various in which souls are following their various patron gods or leader gods, you know, across the heavens, and they attempt to ascend to, you know, the you know, the, the beyond space, um, you know, the intelligible world, if you, or whatever you will. And then some, of course, can't control their chariots because of the dark horse, and then they fall to Earth to Tartarus um, and are punished um, and all of that, and or at least they renew the cycle of reincarnation and they don't escape it.
0: Can I just say, in that yeah. context, what I find so wonderful and fascinating about Julian is, although he is late antique, in the extreme and very mm-hmm. kind of plodding and very heavy he doesn't mm-hmm. show a lot of kind of lightness of wit sometimes but then sometimes mm-hmm. he does such as in his so sometimes he's very pious like in mm-hmm. this kind of almost dreary way but sometimes as in this work what's it called is it the banquet this sort of, um
1: the caesars
0: yeah the caesars yes where um
1: also Otherwise known as the uh, the Cronia or, or Saturnalia or the Symposium, yeah, um, right. Which is a
0: riff on Plato's Phaedrus myth, among other things. That mm-hmm. you could have found anywhere in the Second Sophistic, right? It's it's lighthearted, it's satirical, it's poking fun at his predecessors as emperors, but also seemingly, you know, it's not afraid of poking fun at the gods and making the gods into sort of comic figures to some degree doing human stuff so although he sees the gods as fundamentally metaphysical realities who don't do stuff that the gods aren't supposed to do they don't commit incest they don't play jokes on each other you know etc etc he'll still depict them that way which is wonderful you know Mm -hmm. and it is in that sense he really is a throwback to an
1: earlier age it seems to Mm -hmm. me yeah. Um Julian's definitely reading Second's Physics stuff as well. Um, you know, definitely Dio Chrysostom and probably Lucian. Um well, there you which, go. Is, which is probably where he's getting the inspiration for satire in that vein. And so yeah, the Caesars is a, a wonderful work. And, you know, at the beginning he presents it. Uh, saying, well, it's the Saturnalia, so uh, I actually, I, I guess I have to do something more festive and entertaining here than my usual, you know, pious <laughs> diatribes. So here's a myth, but I'm a presenting a myth, and he says this explicitly, I'm presenting a myth in the style of Plato, okay? uh, because I have serious lessons to teach by way of myth here and i and i see that as that's encouraging the reader to yes be entertained by the exterior you know facets of the myth but also to read into it you know some serious lessons about his view of himself as emperor of imperial ideology as well as the metaphysics that underlie it and i think this connects to his idea that Roman emperors patter themselves on Romulus, okay, the hero who is who is sent by Helios to found Rome, okay, and then ascends to the gods after he fulfills that mission, you know, as you could say a god in his own right, uh, though I read it as, you know, more of ascending to the gods um, in a process of honosis and things like that. So in the Caesars Romulus invites all of the emperors to join this banquet of the gods on, well, yes, on Olympus, but no, because what's really happening is the gods are in their positions within the heavenly spheres and that the emperors ascend only as far as just below the moon. Yep. Okay. Because that is the place in the Iamblichean hierarchy where you have the superior beings below the gods, uh, such as heroes. And he calls the emperors in this work heroes, as heroes. And he does that for a couple reasons, I think. First, he is partly using the satire to talk about imperial cult as if you were a good emperor in the eyes of at least the Senate, you died and then they would start worshiping you as a god. Okay? They did that with Augustus, Claudius, Trajan, you know, all the good ones. And then the ones who were bad were not deified. And those tended to be the ones in the satire that fell back to Tartarus, like Nero and Caligula and Commodus and Domitian, and, and etc. The other thing is, is that he's not actually saying that these emperors were heroes or became heroes, but that they acted like heroes, which in the Iamblachian hierarchy, you know, the heroes have certain functions to inspire, you know, great deeds, you know, to imitate a hero is to impose civilization, be a great military leader and a good ruler.
0: But you're not actually rising up the ontological hierarchy because that's not really possible. That's That's right. For Yumbikos. Right.
1: Yeah. Um, So for Julian, you know, in this, in other places, you know, he sees the ideal ruler. Their primary aim is not military conquest or amassing wealth or even ruling well, but above all, it's to imitate the gods. In other words, to act on earth to your subjects as the gods act toward you and you know all they rule and for this he looks back to ultimately the theotetus where the idea of uh, you know imitating the gods purifying your soul through philosophical activity which for julian would not just include contemplation but also ritual and and theurgic practices in order to become like a god because if you become like a god then you can better serve your subjects much as the gods serve humanity Uh, and this connects again to his metaphysics